Okay, let's, I like to say, let's get back up to periscope depth. Yeah. I hope that you got a chance to kind of go a little deeper this morning and, and find that space because that's the sweet spot. If we can take the time on a regular basis to go down into that deeper spot, that, that stillness, that, that silence, interior solitude, it makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. Not just in the time of prayer, not just in the time of quiet, but all throughout your day. In fact, that's really where you're going to see it more. You're going to see the change, not in terms of what you're doing at the moment, but you're going to see it in increased awareness, maybe increased uh, peace, serenity, whatever you want to call it, a little bit more balance, a little bit slower to respond and uh, react, I suppose, time to respond. And that's the point of all of this. If we can make this our practice and doing it here today, today together, even though we're remote, is, of course, the icing on the cake. But see if you can recreate what you did this morning if you were able to get into that space on your own every morning with your coffee, with your dog at your feet. Always nice with a dog at your feet, right? Everything, everything goes better with dogs, right, Sherry? Okay. Sherry's our dog person. Um, over the last few weeks, we have been looking at a theme, and the theme expressed by James in his book, as we've been going through that uh, midweek and also hitting it here, that theme expressed by Jesus, it's the same theme, and it's all pointing to this fundamental shift in viewpoint, this fundamental shift in perspective, taking a look at the world from a complete 180-degree difference. And what Jesus and James and, and the entire New Testament is trying to get us to, because I believe this is the crux of everything that, that is good news in the New Testament, is that they're trying to get us to be able to see life through our Father's eyes. Not through our eyes, but through our Father's eyes. Looking at life through our eyes is the predictable way that we look at life. It's the typical way we looked at life with predictable results. But to turn that around, to see life through the Father's eyes, everything changes. The, the colors change. Everything changes. To do that is not straightforward. To be able to do that is not going to be direct. We can't transfer that to anyone. It is something that has to be learned. It's something that has to be experienced. And what is it that we're trying to experience? We're trying to find out that God really is, this Father of Jesus really is love unchanging. Unchanging love. Perfected love. Perfected relationship. Perfected connection with us. He is all of that. He is this thing. He doesn't do it. He is this connection. All his choices are already made and have been made since the beginning of time. His mind is made up about us, and that's a good thing because we're his beloved. He's already chosen. All his resources already have flown to us, flowed to us, I guess is a better way to put it. They're already here, and they have been all along. This is something that is so difficult for us to understand. His mind has been made up from the beginning in our favor, and it cannot and it will not change because God is this love. God is this choice. I was thinking last night, how do I try to make this more concrete? How do I try to, to get this 
in terms even I can start to get my head more around. And I was thinking about, have you ever had someone in your life that you always knew where they stood? You know, they were, they were probably very outspoken. They said exactly what they meant at all times, and sometimes that was irritating, sometimes it was annoying, sometimes it was a little bit too much truth at the moment, but you always knew where they stood. You could trust them because they always said what they meant and meant what they said. They were always honest with you. Have you ever had someone in your life like that that you could trust absolutely because of who they were and how they related to you? I've heard over and over that in wartime, soldiers have this bond with their fellow soldiers, with the ones that they put lives in their hands and whose lives are in their hands. And on that battlefield, there is a bond that is like few others in life. And when the war is over, at least when it's over for them and the veterans come back, it's very difficult for them to assimilate back into civilian life. And many of them long for the battlefield again. And it makes them sound strange, like, you know, what is going on with, <laughs> with their understanding of things? Are, 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 they, are they just bloodthirsty? They just want the battlefield again? Absolutely not. What they long for is that quality of relationship. Because it's so difficult to find in everyday life. When the stakes aren't life and death. When everything isn't that intense. To dial that back and to find that same kind of connection, that absolute trust, that's what we all long for. But to have had a taste of it on the battlefield and then not be able to find it again is a difficult thing. Jesus is basically telling us, your father is just like that. Just like those kinds of relationships. Whatever relationship you've had that you could trust that much, whether you're a veteran or not, that's who our Father is, time's perfection. We can absolutely trust that God is who he says he is, that he means what he says and says what he means and is always here, always here for us. No hesitation. All resources already poured out, already given. What difference would it make in your life if you could actually trust that our God is who he says he is. How would the experiences in your life change if you really trusted, not just believed with your head, but really trusted because of your experience over long periods of time that this God is who he says he is? What's the difference in your experience with people you can trust in that way and people that you can't? Think about that maybe. Maybe that'll bring it home a little bit more. Someone that you really trust. You don't have to worry about. You never ask the question, what if? Oh, what if they don't show? What if they're going to change their opinion about me? What if they don't accept me anymore? Those questions are just not even on the table. And what if you could approach all of life without asking to ask, having to ask, what if? How would that change if we really had the full extent of this relationship with our God in our back pocket. Wouldn't you relax? <laughs> Wouldn't you be able to, to deal with the difficulties in a different way? Wouldn't you allow people to really see you because you knew that you were already accepted? How much would change if you really did trust? This is a question that 
Jesus is asking us. And this is the freedom that Jesus is promising us, but he can't give it to us. Nobody can give it to us. This is something that can only be experienced. We can only walk through life risking something that we say we believe in order to find out whether it's true. And this is why Jesus taught the way. This way that he said that he was, look at me, I'm the way, this, this shape of my journey. If you follow this way, if you follow this shape, then you will find the truth and the truth will make you free. Free from what? Free from the what if. Free from wondering if everything is going to be okay, if you're still okay, if you're still accepted. This is that fundamental shift that all of the evangelists and Jesus are trying to get us to see. Looking at life through our Father's eyes changes everything. You know, when we look out at life and we look at a difficulty in life like we're going through right now with this pandemic or the layers, as, as Frank was, was just uh, praying at the beginning, you know, we've got people in here who are experiencing death and health issues and, and surgeries and whatnot. All of those difficulties piled on top of and layered on top of the ones that we're all experiencing. When we look out at life and we see those difficulties, Father looks out, our Father looks out, and sees that it's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to experience the difficulty in a way that we will learn more and more to trust what is right in front of us. It's what James was telling us when he said, you know, count it joy when you do have an opportunity to go through a trial because that is the mechanism. That is the way by which you will be made whole. You will be made perfect and lacking in nothing. That is the way that we grow. We see the difficulty from the Father's eyes, 180 degrees. It's an opportunity. We look out of life and we see emptiness. We feel emptiness. We feel this deep existential lack within ourselves. But Father looks out and he sees something very different. Father looks out and he sees it is the emptying just before the infilling. It is the necessary clearing of the, of the decks before the abundance is realized. That was always there, but now it's realized. We see emptiness. God sees the abundance. We look out at the world, and we see conditions all over the place. We see prerequisites. We see that there are certain things that we need to do, hoops that we need to jump through legally in order to be accepted, in order to be saved. But God looks out, and he sees those same standards, those same milestones that we achieve in life, as proof that the acceptance is already there. How in the world would we even care to go through these hoops, care to meet certain standards that are, that are ethical, that are behavioral, that are relational, if we weren't already part of the family, if we weren't already created in God's image, if we weren't already accepted by him? It's not that we go through the conditions in order to be accepted. We go through the conditions to prove to ourselves that we already are. Once again, one way we look at life, turning it around and looking at it through the Father's eyes and see something very different. When we look at the cross, we just went through Good Friday and Easter. When we look at, when we look at the cross, what do we see? Well, we see sacrifice, don't we? We see 
the implication of God's wrath that needs to be appeased. That this legal contract, this sacrificial system, the shedding of blood is appeasing an angry God. It has to do with law. It has to do with condition. But the cross looked at through the Father's eyes. What does the Father see? What will we see when we turn it around? We see vulnerability. We see Jesus' willingness to remain vulnerable through the most heinous and harsh circumstances, through the greatest betrayal, to remain vulnerable, to leave his defenses down so that he could stay connected. We see the submission of that for the sake of the beloved. And we see identification with even those who were torturing him. We see love. We see the cross in a completely different way, simply by changing our point of view. When Jesus, hanging from the cross, says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. This is a pivotal moment. I I would say this is the moment in terms of understanding the good news. What is Jesus' motive here? What is he trying to say when he says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing? This is Jesus seeing the ugliest possible human behavior. But from the other point of view, taking a look at it again, he is seeing the fear that creates the behavior. He's seeing that they don't have the awareness in and of themselves to see how their fear is driving them to the kind of behavior that they're exhibiting right now, the, the kind of, of lack of compassion and, and the, the torture that they're inflicting. They can't see the fear of what they don't understand. They can't see the fear of something that is just simply different from themselves. They can't see the fear of a threat that they perceive and how that is driving their behavior. They can't see how the fear drives them into things that they would maybe normally never do. But Jesus is seeing that at that moment. He's seeing the fear. He understands the fear. He identifies with the fear. He has been facing it as well. The night before the crucifixion, he sweat blood for fear of what he was going to go through, seeing if there was any other alternative. But moving through that, identifying with his own fear, he can now see their fear and identify with them and retain his sense of compassion, retain his sense of connection, even there. You see, this is why we're here. I mean, think about it. This is why we're here, to experience our own fear, to accept our own vulnerabilities, our weaknesses, so that we can identify with others' fears, with others' vulnerability. And we can't even connect with them. We can't love them until we do this. This is why we're here. This is what Jesus is showing us. This is what everything is geared to in the New Testament, to get us to change that point of view. Because we can only face, only become aware of our fears and our aberrant behavior when we move through difficult times. That's when it is laid bare. That's when things are actually apparent to us. It's possible for us to see them and move through them. And this is, again, why James is saying these are... This is the joy of the trial. It's the opportunity to become whole and complete and compassionate. Now, we don't like this arrangement one bit, do we? 
And we keep looking for a kinder, gentler way to be able to move through this. We imagine that there's still something that can come from outside of ourselves that will convince us, right? That will change us in sort of a passive way. If we could just find that thing and bring it in, it's going to do the job. But it doesn't exist. It can't be transferred. This change of viewpoint, this experiential way of looking at life from the Father's eyes is nothing that can be bestowed. It only has to come and only can come from within. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. And I know we've quoted this many times, but at Luke 17, starting at verse 20, Jesus is telling us that kingdom as he understands it is always realized from within. It never comes from outside. It is always the result of an active participation and active engagement. He says, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, there it is, or here it is, For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And I know you've heard me say many times that the word there, even in Greek, means in your midst and within and and in the middle of all at the same time. But then in Aramaic, legaumen means moving dynamically from inside to outside, always in that direction. The kingdom of God is always moving from inside to outside. It's an active engagement or it's nothing at all. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here, but don't go that way. Do not run after them. He tells that to his disciples. The Pharisees are looking. All of us are looking for a sign, looking for something, something out there that will have the certainty that will have the incontrovertible proof that we are always looking for, always wanting to rely on, so that we don't have to do the work, basically, that it's going to take for us to risk something in a walk of faith. It doesn't exist, is what Jesus is telling us. But we keep asking. At Matthew 12, verse 38, some of the scribes and the Pharisees say to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Ooh, that doesn't sound too good. And yet, no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that there is no external sign that will do this job for us. There is no external sign or, or process that you're not absolutely engaged in from the inside out that's going to convince you, that's going to allow you to trust who this Father is, that will allow you to see through the Father's eyes. There is only the shape of the journey that you personally take that Jesus and Jonah are showing us to descend down into the belly of the beast, to descend down into the emptiness of the grave, to descend down into the disturbance so that you can come back up on the other side. Because in the descent is the only place that we will face those fears, that we will face our own vulnerabilities, our own frailties, where we will learn who we really are and not who we would like ourselves to be. 
and facing them and realizing that truth is what liberates us. But we keep asking. We keep asking. They kept asking Jesus. We keep asking today. Jesus tells that interesting parable of of Lazarus, the poor man, and the rich man. And the rich man had it all throughout his entire life. The poor man had nothing his entire life, and they both die. And at that point, the poor man, Lazarus, is comforted in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man is in Gehenna, in that place of, of torment. And he's talking across a gulf to Abraham and says, hey, can Lazarus come and at least give me just a drop of water? Can't do it. Can't cross the chasm. He says, okay, well then, if he can't come to me, can you send him to my brothers? I have five brothers at home, and I don't want them to have to go through. So so, uh, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them. This is at Luke 16. So that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. (laughs) But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, that may sound like a bit of hyperbole to you. Wouldn't you think that if someone rose from the dead to tell you something that you would listen? You know, it's not that simple, is it? We have these near-death experience stories that we've read a couple of them in here. Marion had sent another one to me this week. And as inspiring and convincing and amazing as they can be, they don't mean anything to anyone except the person who had the experience in that same way. And until that experience becomes our experience, until we experience the trustworthiness of our Father in heaven, the trustworthiness of this message, we will never have that kind of conviction. And even those who have gone through the experience, I remember when I was talking to my friend Brady who had that incredible near-death experience that we read in here, he said, over the years since then, He would like to say that he was always living up to the kind of trust and the peace and connection that he felt in that moment, but he knows that he hasn't. It comes and it goes and it fades. This is human nature. If we have not become the kind of people who are prepared to listen to who is here now, to have the experience here now, then no external sign is going to be enough. We still won't trust. There is no other way. We can't import this. And Jesus brings this to a head, I think, in John 10, which is the beautiful chapter on the Good Shepherd. He says right at verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, that's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they will simply not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers." So here, just a word about ancient sheepfolds and the way that they were constructed, usually against the side of a hill, so that there were just three rough 
walls made just of piling up stones. Sheep are not the brightest bulbs in the animal kingdom, so you just pile up just a little bit of a, of a, of a block, and they'll stay within it. They don't need a lot of encouragement. And so three sides would come up, and sometimes there was just a space left in the third wall. Sometimes if it was more of a permanent enclosure, a gate would be made. But most often, the shepherd himself would simply lie and sleep across the break, across the opening, and literally become the door of the sheepfold. They wouldn't step over him as long as he was lying there. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. That door, that one way, is the only way to legitimately come and go in kingdom to find the pasture, to find the place. Everything else, any attempted shortcuts, are thieves and robbers. It's not the same experience ever. There are no shortcuts. He goes on, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you take all of this imagery about the kingdom, about the sign of Jonah, about Lazarus, about the good shepherd, if you take all that together and put it in a pile, what you get is to be able to see the necessity of the shape of this way. In making the fundamental shift that we're talking about to see life through the Father's eyes. But we want so badly for another way to be possible, right? We want it so badly that we just imagine that it's so that we can still pray for this sign. And we do all the time, don't we? Give me a sign. I know I do. When I'm having a really, just, Father, something. Show me something. We're always asking for the sign. We're always asking for this kind of relief. Any infilling that doesn't come after having to sell everything, as Jesus said. Give me something that I don't have to completely empty myself for and move down into that place of disturbance. Anything like that. We want to be told in some kind of miraculous way. We imagine that some miracle is going to give us something that we can't find through day-to-day and direct experience with God's Spirit. Give us something so that we can get what we're looking for, what you promise us, and we don't have to suffer for it. But without the suffering, and without suffering through the difficulties, we never experience And we never feel the acceptance of our own fears. We never move into that place of vulnerability. Not ours, and we'll never see those of others. I know I use this all the time, but it is so perfect that Dorothy was wearing those ruby slippers the entire time. She could have gone home any time that she wanted. And it wasn't until the very end that the witch tells her all of that. And the scarecrow is speaking for me. You know, why didn't you just tell her? She had to find out for herself. There's nothing that can be transferred to us 
without us going through the hero's journey, going through the rite of passage, doing the difficult things, having to go get the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West and bring it back, doing all the things that grow our own courage, our own fortitude, our own intelligence, our own compassion, like Tin Man and Woodman, Woodman and Lion and Scarecrow were for Dorothy, those parts of ourselves have to be raised up and grown through the difficult things that we go through as well. We only want to experience our strengths and our weaknesses, our successes, our, our strengths and our successes. We never want to feel those fears or the compulsive behavior that comes from them. But when we're living honestly with life, really honestly with life, when we are really aware of what is happening right here and right now, it's our vulnerabilities that we're seeing, not our strengths. And especially when things get difficult, what is it that is screaming at us? I suppose it's a definition of a difficult time. What is screaming at us is our fears, is our vulnerabilities, is our fear that we are not capable of handling this difficulty. That is the place where life is getting teeth and traction. That is the place where we're ready to learn something. Richard Rohr had a wonderful um, meditation this week, and I wanted to read um, parts of it. He calls it the backside of God, and he's referring to that wonderful story in Exodus where Moses wants to see God, but God says, hey, you can't take my full face. You're going to have to wait until I pass and you can see my backside. But when we're really leaned into life and living that way, this hyper-awareness of vulnerability is what Richard is trying to get across. The imagined strength that, that we would like to imagine that we are always in, the strength of ourselves, that's just ego illusion. There's still something very different going on here. Richard writes, I feel a deep solidarity with individuals throughout the world who are wrestling with health issues. In 2016, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer and underwent a complete prostatectomy. The wisdom lessons that God offered me before, during, and after the surgery were pretty much constant. The experiences were initially disempowering, sometimes scary in their immediacy, and only in hindsight were they in any way empowering. Prayer was both constant and impossible for much of this period. About 10 days after the surgery, during my attempt at some spiritual reading, I opened the Bible to an obscure passage in the book of Exodus. Moses asks Yahweh to show me your glory, and Yahweh shows it in a most unusual way. He says, I shall place you in the cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I shall take my hand away, and you shall see my backside. But my face will not be seen. In several sermons, I have used that verse to teach that our knowledge of God is indirect at best, and none of our knowledge is fully face-to-face. -face. God is always and forever mystery. All we see is the backside of God. But during this time, it was not the indirectness that hit me in this passage, but the directness. My best spiritual knowing almost always occurs after the fact, in the remembering, not seen until God has passed by. I realize that in the moments of diagnosis, doctor's warnings, waiting, delays, and the surgery itself, I was as fragile, scared, and insecure as anybody would be. If I would stay with the full narrative, 
all, if I could stay with the full narrative all the way into and through, only afterward could I invariably see, trust, and enjoy the wonderful works of God. The foundation of faith is the ability to look at our entire salvation history and then trust that this pattern would never, could never change. It is largely after the fact that faith is formed and gloriously transmuted into hope for the future. Only after the fact can you see that you were being held and led during the fact. During the fact, you do not enjoy or trust your own strength at all. In fact, quite the opposite. You just cry out in various ways. Then God, for some wonderful reason, is able to fill the gap. Enduring through trial. Feeling our fear. Leaned into it. Accepting that it's there. Owning it. Seeing our unbecoming, dysfunctional behavior that results from our fear. That completes us completes us in love. <sighs> By identifying with this fear and with this pain in others, we s- can finally identify with the people around us and the things that they are doing that hurt us, that offend us, that are causing us such great difficulty morph into something else. When you look back and you think about the people that you have hurt in times past, did you mean to do that? Were you taking joy in the pain that you were causing? Most likely, you were completely unaware at the time of the pain that you were causing. You were doing the best you had and the best that you could do with the tools that you had to work with. As most of us are, we did not know what it is that we were doing. And when the people that are hurting us are so forefront in our minds, we could say the same thing that Jesus said from the cross if we're aware enough Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't when I'm hurting people because I never want to hurt someone actively, consciously, but I do, and I don't know what I'm doing when I'm doing it because I am reacting out of some fear. I'm reacting out of some need, some compulsion that I have. This is what we're trying to get across here. And What I'm seeing right now that's disturbing in our culture, in our society, both large and small, even in our own homes, as we go deeper and deeper through this pandemic, is that we're becoming less and less compassionate, less and less forgiving as a people. We're becoming much more judgmental and consequently much more miserable. This pandemic seems to be bringing all life to a boil around us. But if we could look on each other through the awareness of our own fears, how much more patience, how much more compassion, how much more understanding, how much more everything that we call love could be possible, could be here. And as I was thinking about this, Paul's wonderful verse at 1 Corinthians 13 came to mind. Love is patient. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered, nor rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. 
bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. All this, all these attributes come only through, only through the identification that we have with our own fears first, with our own vulnerabilities. And then from there, the vulnerabilities of the person who's right in front of us. It's all about our fears. We have to face this. It's all about the fears. If we can understand our fears, we can understand our words and our actions, both ours and those of others. If we can understand the words and the actions, then we can identify with our own fears again. And then the forgiveness and the compassion is going to follow that. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Could Jesus have said that if he hadn't faced his own fears in the Garden of Gethsemane? If he hadn't faced his own fears and vulnerability in his time in the wilderness and everything in between? If he hadn't followed the shape of his own journey into that place and come out the other side, would he have been able to say that at the moment of his greatest duress? There are people around us right now that are fearing for their very survival whether it's because they have a procedure tomorrow morning or because they've lost their job and they don't know if they're going to be able to find one again, if they're going to be able to survive. Have you ever been in that position yourself? Do you know what that feels like? Have you ever been that scared to wonder if you were going to be able to feed your family? And if you were, what did it make you say? How did it make you feel? What did it make you do? When we see the unbecoming behavior of people around us, if we can see through that to the fears that are driving it, we will find something that we can identify with and find that connection and find a wellspring of compassion that wasn't there before. Some people are fearing the medical more than the financial, right? And so they're going to look at things one way. And they're going to probably hate the protesters that are out there who are the ones that are fearing the financial more than the medical and are hating the officials who have dictated to them what they can and can't do. Some people are fearing all sorts of different things. Maybe they're, they're fearing loneliness or fearing isolation. Maybe they're fearing just the loss of control that they cannot do the things that they used to do before, make the kind of money that they made before. Maybe they're fearing the loss of their own identity because they don't have a job anymore or they're not caring for their children the way that they did before. Maybe they're fearing the loss of their civil rights and every one of those fears is causing them to act out in a certain way. And if we are being offended, if we are being triggered by that, if we can again look through the behavior to the fears and identify them with our own, then we can start to see how am I acting out? How am I being triggered by the fears that I have in all of this? If we can start with ourselves first, be honest with ourselves, dig down, find the source of the fear that is driving us. If we can do that with the people in our own household, the ones that are closest to us, that maybe things are really starting to get raw within that house with all these weeks of forced togetherness. Can we do that? Can we look at the fears of our own family members, of those we actually live with? 
can we take a look at then the larger group and do exactly the same thing? Identify the fears. Identify with the fears. And forgive them. Because none of us know what we're doing when we're in the midst of our fears, when our fears own us. But when we own the fears, then we can move forward. They don't know what they're doing. When we can do this, then we can start to love as God loves. You know, in a very real way, we're not here to be saved the way we typically think of salvation. We're not here for something to come from outside of ourselves and pluck us out, you know, in, in, in any sort of way. We're here to experience our vulnerabilities. We're here to experience our fears because if we're just pulled out, where is the, the learning in that? What's the point of that in terms of why we're here? Why this life? Why this way? But to have to experience life with this mix of difficulties and joys, to experience our vulnerability and our fear will expand our ability for compassion and for connection, which will be, as we experience that expanded ability to love, be our salvation, the realization of our salvation. And so right now, in the midst of all of this, whatever is going on, whatever we feel ourselves going through, become, if we can become more aware of what offends us, if we can become more aware of our triggers, if we can lean in, dig down, and find out the fears that are driving us, if we can start right now and stop praying for our difficulties to be taken away, but see how we can lean in and learn to face our own fears and own them and see how that softens our hearts toward others and their fears, then in our awareness of that moment, literally as if we were hanging on the cross, we can move into this process of forgiving and realize the salvation that Jesus is talking about when we can finally turn and see life relationship, everything through our Father's eyes. Let's pray. Father, your eyes are the ones that count. Yours, your eyes are the ones that see truly. Your eyes are the ones that make sense of life. Give us meaning and purpose and literally our own identity if we can see through your eyes. Help us in this, Lord. We literally don't know what we're doing. We are literally not aware of the triggers and the responses, the reactions that we have. Help us to practice the awareness we need to practice to get to even first base with this. Help us to, to value the awareness and the digging in process. The, 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 the pain of having to see our own unbecoming behavior and the fear that drives it. But give us 
that desire. Give us that perseverance to lean in and to dig down so that we can find in that space everything we need to be able to forgive as you forgive and love as you love with the compassion and with the grace that you show us every single moment of our lives. That's what we want, Father. So help us, help us. You know how weak we are. But we love you and we desire this and we know that you will be there every step of the way. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for caring for us and seeing us through all of this. Never let us forget, we can only love in return because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, would you take metaphorical hands? You can stand up if you want to or just stay seated, but take those hands and let's pray. Whose Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. Have a wonderful Monday and Tuesday, right up to the point that you log in at 6.30 on, on uh, Tuesday night. That is Pacific time. That is daylight savings time, because many of you are in different time zones, which is wonderful. And then Wednesday night, same thing. Uh, same bat time, 6.30. Uh, different channel, though. And uh, come and join us for the book study on James. And then we'll see you again here on Sunday next. Uh, and Lord willing... That it would be, it's only a short time before we can start filling up these seats here. So um, I'm not feeling quite so lonely. That would be great. Have a wonderful Sunday. See you soon. <laughs>